Can I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 4, if you would. Acts chapter 4. And last week we looked at the account in Acts chapter 3 of the man who was lame from his mother's womb there at the gate of the temple. And Peter and John came by and healed that man. And then that caused such a stir and brought so much attention that Peter had the opportunity to open his mouth and preach to the crowd about the fact that this man was healed by the power of Jesus, resurrection power. And that's where we left off at the end of Acts chapter 3, as Peter was pressing home the claims of Jesus Christ to the crowd of people who had assembled there in the temple, out in the quarter of the Gentiles. And, and we pick up the story in Acts chapter 4. I'd like to read verses 1 through 22. It's a continuation of the story from Acts chapter 3. And we'll find that God does a great work there in the lives of many people through the preaching of the Word of God. Acts chapter 4, verse number 1, the Scripture says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power... Or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, "'What shall we do to these men?' For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Very interesting passage of Scripture. And we find clearly here in Acts chapter 4 that the preaching of the gospel caused a stir, in some ways positive and in some ways negative. Now, obviously, here in Acts 4, Peter and John are described to us as powerful gospel preachers. They're men who are full of the Holy Spirit's power. They are being used by God in a great way. You'll notice that according to verse 4, on this particular day, the number of men who believed the gospel message was 5,000 men. That's quite a movement towards the gospel. God was using them in a great way. Now, We would point out to you, like on the day of Pentecost, this was a unique circumstance, and these were prepared people. God had prepared them for the hearing of this message, but I believe here in Acts chapter 4, there's some key things that we can learn about preaching the gospel and how we present the gospel message, how we think about the gospel and how we think about what people will do or how they will respond as the gospel is preached. And so this morning, with the Lord's help, I'd like to speak to you about none other name. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is the preaching of the message of Jesus Christ. But what do we learn about how we ought to preach that message here in Acts chapter 4? The first thing I want to point out to you is that you and I need to recognize that the gospel message is often offensive. The gospel message is often offensive. Now, there's two different groups of people that are described here in the beginning verses of Acts chapter 4. There's a group of people who are eagerly hearing and receiving the word of God whose lives are going to be changed and they become followers of Jesus Christ. So they're not the ones who are offended by the gospel. They're the ones who are receiving it with joy. And God is doing a great work in their lives. But there is another group of people that is mentioned here. And for these people, the preaching of the gospel is terribly offensive to them. It is something that causes them to become quite angry. Actually, the word that is used in verse number 2 is that they were being grieved. They were were cut to the heart to think that Peter and John were here teaching the the people and, and preaching about Jesus and about the resurrection from the dead. They were so upset that they came storming into the area where Peter and John were preaching to this crowd and they laid hands on them in verse 3. That means they grabbed a hold of them roughly. They mistreated them. They said, get out of here. You don't belong in this place. Now, they're further going to take Peter and John because it was evening time. 
and they're going to put them in the prison or the jail that was there on the temple grounds until the next day when they would consider this case. So Peter and John are thrown in jail, and they're going the next day to be brought in front of a council of men. Now, if you think about this for just a minute, I don't know how many of us would have gone on visitation yesterday if we thought there was a higher than average chance that someone was going to come running down the street and grab us and throw us in jail overnight. I feel like we may have avoided going out on outreach or at least really weighed out the cost, maybe found a way to be more discreet. I'm not sure. We probably would have done things a little differently if we could have anticipated. You say, well, Peter and John didn't really anticipate that this would happen. Really? Uh, you know, it's not, it's not but just a couple months before this that Jesus was taken by this same crowd and was accused falsely and put on a cross. So why would they think that they would be treated any differently? But I think what the apostles understood is that when you preach the gospel with clarity, some people will receive it, but some people will be quite angry that you are preaching the gospel. Now, you'll notice in verse number 5, there's a cumulative list that is built, verse 5 and verse 6, of the powerful men that came to accuse Peter and John and to to try to intimidate them and tell them that they can't preach the gospel anymore. And uh, the way the wording is in, in these verses, you notice how it builds. It says, "...they're rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, who used to be the high priest." and John, and Alexander, and as many were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. This is like the who's who of the temple grounds. All the important people were coming to see these two men and say, what are you doing? Why are you preaching this message? The question they asked in verse 7 is, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And what they're asking is who's your authority or who gave you the right to preach in this way? Who gave you the power to heal this man? If we preach the gospel, it stands to reason that there will be times when we will be asked this same question as well. Have you ever been asked this question when sharing the gospel with someone? Who do you think you are? Who who gave you the right to say this, who gave you the opportunity to come here? I, many times I've been asked this question, and you know the right answer is what the apostles understood. It is that God has given us this authority. God is the one who has given us this message. But what I want you to see in these first seven verses is that the gospel is not all warm fuzzies and nice feelings. I think the way that a lot of people in this world talk about, and in our culture, talk about the gospel, they expect the gospel to be kind of like, oh, it feels so good, and everybody's going to be so happy when you tell them about Jesus. But there's a lot of people who are not going to be happy when you tell them the true message of the gospel. Now, why is it? Why is it that the gospel is so offensive? Or what is it that is so offensive about the gospel? Well, I would propose to you today 
that it offends people to know that they have sinned against God. It offends people to hear that I'm not right with God. Most people have the assumption or the belief that they are a pretty good person, that they are mostly right with God. Okay, I got a couple little problems that I need to fix up, but, you know, on the whole, I'm a good person and God will accept me. And they really recoil against the gospel message that says, no, actually, you are a rebel against God. You are condemned justly because of your sin, and people don't care much for that message. The second reason that people are often offended by the gospel message is because they're offended when they find out that there is a penalty for sin. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, I could never believe in a God like that, a God who would send someone to hell, a God who would judge sin. I couldn't ever believe in a God like that. I'm going to tell you that that's probably the majority of people in the world who choose not to believe in a God like that. The reality is it doesn't matter whether you want to believe in a God like that or not. That's who he is. He is going to judge sin. There is a penalty for sin. It is serious. The good news is that there's a remedy. But before you can receive the good news, you've got to receive the bad news. Third of all, it offends people to know that there is only one way of salvation. It's very offensive to people when you say to them, your church cannot save you. Your good works are insufficient. Your way of seeing the world or of doing things, your way of worship is incorrect according to the Bible. It is not true. That is very difficult for people to digest. They don't like to hear that the only way of salvation is Jesus. Lots of people want to talk about Jesus and feel good about Jesus and say that they love Jesus until you tell them that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And then they say, that's not the Jesus that I believe in. This is actually the problem. People have created a Jesus of their own liking They have created a God of their own liking. And when you present them with the biblical truth, they're offended. They don't like it. The fourth reason, the fourth reason that the gospel message is offensive is because it offends people to know that the majority of people are lost and not saved. Most people think, well, the majority of people are right with God. The majority of people are saved. The majority of people are going to heaven. And when you show them from the Bible that that is not the case, that actually the way to eternal life is narrow, it, it, is, it is very straight is the word that is used in the Bible. It means it's very tight entrance and not many people are going to go in that way. Most people are on the broad way. To destruction. By the way, those are the words of Jesus himself. And people get offended by that. They don't like to hear that message. Now, the word offend or offense biblically means to stumble. It means to trip over. And, and for many people, instead of the gospel message being something that they can incorporate into their life through faith and build their life upon... It becomes something that they stumble over. But I think it's important for us to understand this morning that the gospel message, 
biblically preached, that is, conveyed according to the truth of God, is an offensive message. Many people find the gospel extremely offensive. And in this case, the message that was being preached was really bothering these religious leaders. And they came to accuse and to intimidate and to try to get Peter and John to stop preaching this message. So this morning, if we're going to preach the gospel, recognize that the gospel message is offensive. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. You see, there's something to be learned about this. The second truth that we find in this passage is that we need to refuse to change the message for anyone. Refuse to change the message for anyone. Now, lest you think that that is an arrogant statement, I want to remind you that the message is not our message. We don't get to choose the content of the message. We don't get to say, well, in this situation, I think that salvation will be this. And and, and in your case, I think we can make these accommodations. That's not up to us. God is the one who gave the message. God is the one who declared what the theme would be. God is the one who declared these truths to be so. It is not any man's place to change that message. Peter and John, in verse 8, are speaking to the most powerful men in Jerusalem. These men are holding Peter and John's lives in their hands. But notice what it says in verse number 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them. He was filled with the Holy Spirit again. And he's going to speak very plainly without apology. He's not being rude. He's not being cantankerous. He's just speaking the truth to these men so that they understand exactly what is right and what is wrong. And he says in verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. Peter wasn't going to back off from pointing to Jesus Christ. There's a very popular notion today in our culture, in our polytheistic American culture, that we need, as Christians especially, we need to be more accommodating to other religions. It's not uncommon for clergy to be invited to pray at public events, and then the stipulation be put upon them You can pray and talk to God and pray for this event, but you may not pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I think that as Bible believers, that should be offensive to us. And just so you understand, there's not a one of us that should ever be able or or willing to take that and say, okay, I'll just not pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That is a challenge. And in this case, the challenge had been laid down. Remember, these men are grieved 
that Peter and John are preaching about Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And they came to these men and said, what do you have to say for yourself? And Peter stood up full of the Holy Ghost and he said, I just want to let you guys know this is all about Jesus. And I'm not going to make any apologies about it. I don't care who I'm talking to. You're not going to change the message. He was very bold. The boldness did not come from an angry spirit or from the power of the flesh. The boldness came from Holy Spirit filling. And Peter laid the charge at their feet. This is all about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who you crucified and who God raised from the dead. It's by Jesus that this man is whole. It's by Jesus that this man has been healed. He also pointed out in verse number 11, quoting from Psalm 118, a prophecy about Jesus, which Jesus fulfilled. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Do you hear what he's saying? He's taking the Old Testament and he's saying, you refused Jesus Christ. You turned away from him. But Jesus is the one who is prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who's supposed to be the head of the corner, but you have set him at naught. You've set him aside. The issue is, what will you do with Jesus? Notice how Peter just keeps coming back to the same issue, the same subject, the same truth, and that is, you must do something with Jesus. You must deal with Jesus. He boldly proclaimed to them in verse 12, and I believe verse 12 is a key verse in the book of Acts, that there is no salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter would not back down one bit from the message that he had been commissioned by Jesus to deliver. Remember, Jesus had told them, that they were to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Now Peter stands boldly in front of these powerful men. He points out their sin. He reminds them of the words of the Old Testament, which they said that they believed. And he pointed them to Jesus, who is the only way of salvation. Today, there are many people who would like to generally believe in God. They like the nice teachings about Jesus Christ. They enjoy the morality that is taught through the scriptures and the benefits that can come from God's wisdom. They just don't like if you get too exclusive or if you point out that Jesus is the way of salvation. They just don't care much for the message of the gospel. Now, they like the part about God saving And they like the part about feel-good faith, but they don't like the part about sin and repentance. They don't like the part about the Son of God becoming a sacrifice for their sins. They don't like the part about condemnation and judgment. And they say, if you would just accommodate a little, if you would just make the message more pleasing, you could have a much larger crowd You could have many more people in attendance. You could have a lot of supporters of your ministry. If you would just step back a little bit from the abrasiveness of the message. 
Now listen, this morning, it is not our job to make the message more abrasive than it already is. It's an offensive message. We don't need to be offensive in our attitude or offensive in our presentation. However, we cannot change the message. We cannot accommodate and sidestep the message and make salvation something that it isn't. We can't say to people, well, you know, you don't really have to believe in Jesus. You don't really have to understand who he is. You know, just just call out to God for help. I'm sure he'll be understanding. No, God will not be understanding if you reject his son. God will not be understanding if you choose a different way of salvation. The Bible clearly states that God will not be understanding about that. It is absolutely necessary that you deal with the true message of the gospel. And therefore, you and I, those of us who are children of God, those of us who are called to preach this message, we cannot afford to take shortcuts with this message. We cannot make salvation some kind of a easy one, two, three step. Say these magic words and you'll be saved. That's not what salvation is in the Bible. We cannot make salvation that in our preaching. We need to be very careful to preach Christ crucified. We need to be very careful to make sure that people understand the weight of the law. We need to be careful so that people understand that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We cannot change the message for our own convenience or to gain more quote-unquote converts for our church. We must refuse to change the message for anyone. It doesn't matter whether you're talking to someone who is rich or someone who is poor, someone who is famous or someone who is homeless, someone who is powerful or someone who is common. It doesn't matter who you're speaking to. The message is the same for every man. The way of salvation is the same for every man. And you and I must refuse to change that message for any person. So this morning, recognize that the gospel message is offensive. Refuse to change the message for anyone. Lastly, I want you to see from verse 13 on, we find this truth, that we must resist the temptation to be silenced about Jesus. So the council in verse 13 changed their strategy a little bit. It was pretty obvious to them that they were not going to get Peter and John to change the message. They looked at Peter and John, it says in verse 13, and I love verse 13. It says that as they observed them and they saw their boldness, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now that doesn't mean that they were dummies. It doesn't mean that they were unintelligent. It just means that they had obviously not studied with the most, uh, the most important rabbis. They, they didn't really, they, they weren't learned in the sense of the learned men. They were very common men, average men. And they were, they were just normal men, but there was something special about them, and that was they had been with Jesus. And being with Jesus had changed them, had totally transformed their lives. And they really, the council is looking at them and they don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to deal with them. How are we going to stop them? 
We can't really refute what they're saying. We're not sure how to handle this situation. And besides that, the man that they healed, who had been laying out at the gate and had never walked since the time he was born, was standing right next to them. And they couldn't really say, you didn't actually do a miracle because here's the guy standing here and everybody who's watching knows it's him because they've all seen him out at the gate. And this was what caused them to be interested in the first place. So they realize, okay, we can't really answer because the power of Jesus is on these men, but we've got to get them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. So they dismissed Peter and John in verse 15, and they conferred among themselves, and they said, what are we going to do? We can't really say that there was no miracle because it's already spread and everybody knows there was a miracle and anybody can come and find this guy and realize that he's walking. But we've got to stop this. We don't want people believing on Jesus. We don't want them hearing his name. So I know what we're going to do. We're going to tell them, verse 17, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. So what does that mean? It means they're going to threaten them within an inch of their life. And this is what you do when you can't actually do something. You threaten. And so they said, we're going to really scare them to death. We're going to tell them, don't you ever speak about Jesus. And if you do, there's going to be really bad consequences. So they called Peter and John in and they said to them, they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And that went about like you imagined that it would go. Because Peter and John looked at this council who claimed to be followers of the Lord and followers of the law of God, and they said, well, you can judge for yourself whether it's right for us to do what God told us to do or not. But as far as we are concerned, we know what God has told us, and we will not stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. So in verse 21, they further threatened them, and they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. So at this point, God was still protecting them, but they were threatened severely about what would happen if they continued preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment, because you and I face this temptation and this pressure to not preach in the name of Jesus. In fact, I would imagine in some of the places where some of you work, the name of Jesus is probably quite offensive. It's probably quite offensive to speak about the gospel in the exclusive terms of the Bible. It it could cause you to step back and say, well, if I actually preach the gospel to my coworkers, I might lose my job. I I might be ostracized in society. I might might no longer be accepted in my group of friends. And there certainly is that pressure. Though we don't have the kind of of persecution in this country where we're getting thrown in jail because of preaching the gospel, there is a very obvious pressure against Christians to change the message of the Bible. 
and not to be so plain about what the Bible says. This is exerted on us in many different directions, and it's something that we wrestle with for real. It's some, now, I think something that we have to learn as Christians is what Jesus spoke about, that we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And, and there's a, a, a manner and a, a place and all those sorts of things. But here, in Acts 4, there is just no other way to handle this. They can't say, well, think about it. They can't say, well, you might have a point. Maybe we'll back off on preaching the name of Jesus. They can't. They're in a place where they are forced to declare their allegiance. Are they going to obey men or are they going to obey God? And now at this point, Peter is put in the place of saying, there's nothing else we can do. We have to preach the name of Jesus. Now, again, I want to point out to you, I don't believe that Peter is being belligerent. I don't believe he's being angry. I believe he's preaching these words with compassion. But notice how he framed this in verse 20. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter said, how could we not talk about Jesus? We spent three years with him. We saw him heal. We know that he's alive. We saw him go to the cross We know he was buried. We saw him after he raised from the dead. How can we not talk about Jesus? And I ask you, if your life has been changed by the gospel, how can you not talk about the gospel? How can you not share with others what the gospel has done for you and what Jesus has worked in your life? How could you be silent? And so we have to resist the temptation to be silenced about Jesus. There is an adversary who is actively trying to silence Christians through intimidation. You see that all they could really do, this counsel, was to threaten. And our enemy makes many threats. You're going to lose your job. You're you're not going to be able to pay your bills. You're going to lose business. If you're self-employed, you you can't be a witness on the job. You can't talk to people. I mean, the the people in your community are going to run you out of town. Nobody's going to want to be around you. You're not going to have any friends. Your family is going to disown you. And all these things get whispered in our ear and cause us to consider, should I really preach the message of the gospel? Should I really tell people what I believe about Jesus? There even is this idea in our culture that as long as you don't be too plain, you could be a Christian and, and you can be a follower of Jesus, but just don't be too plain about what you actually believe. Don't, don't tell people the truth of what God says about certain areas of sin. Just back off from those things. They're just not as popular anymore. Listen, friends. We have to be plain about the message that God has given to us. And if we're going to be effective in this generation, we must resist the temptation to be silenced about Jesus. I want to ask you this question. Do you have the same burden that the apostles had, that they expressed in verse 20? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
Is God's power so real in your life that you're compelled to tell others what you have seen and heard? Has the Lord changed your life in an evident way so that you can't help but tell others what he has done for you? Listen, the message of the gospel, what a tragedy it is for people who know the gospel to hold it for themselves and refuse to share it with people who need it. You see, this is the message of hope. This is the message of salvation and forgiveness. This is the message that can change someone's life. But many believers are selfish with that message because they would rather keep it to themselves and not offend someone else. But what if they don't like it? Well, there's a chance they won't like it. What if they get upset with me? There's a chance they'll get upset with you. What if they don't want to talk to me anymore? There's a chance they might not want to talk to you anymore. But what is the cost? What is the cost of you being silent about the only hope that someone has for eternal life and being unwilling to take the risk of offending them instead choosing to allow them to go off into eternity without the Lord Jesus. Are you comfortable with that? Peter and John were not comfortable with that. They said, look, we can't help but preach this message. There is none other name. I want to tell you this morning as we conclude the message, if you're hoping in anything else than Christ his death, burial, and resurrection as the sacrifice for your sin. If you've got some other way worked out in your mind about how you're going to be right with God and accepted by Him, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news today, but I do need to plainly tell you from the Scripture, you are mistaken. There is no other way of salvation than Jesus Christ. If you've never been born again, You'll not be redeemed or forgiven or made right with God by cleaning up your life, joining a religion, becoming a better neighbor, reading your Bible or giving offerings. You're you're not going to make it to heaven hoping that God will just look at you and wink and forgive and overlook the fact that you have rejected his son. My friend, there's only one way of salvation And his name is Jesus Christ. If you've never been born again, I recommend this morning that you come to Jesus. I recommend that you turn from your sin and believe on Christ and trust him for the salvation that he alone can give. Now, many of you are saying amen, so I assume that means that you've believed on Jesus. And if you have, can I encourage you, challenge you, admonish you, That if he has saved you, we have an obligation to tell others about the only salvation that exists through Jesus Christ. Here it is, our missions month. May we be passionate evangelists of the message of Jesus Christ, not backing down for a moment despite whatever threats may come against us. May we boldly preach the message of the gospel.